Our sermon text for today is from 1 John chapter 5, toward the back of your Bibles. Give you a moment to get there. It's been a crazy couple of days, as you can imagine, um, but good days. So, isn't it the phrase, all's well that ends well? Well, that's sort of how we feel, I think, right, Amy? Now, if only the house stuff falls together. So, All right. Speaking of house stuff, we could easily lapse into this text right here. 1 John 5, verse 21, the very last chapter of this, uh, verse, rather, verse of this uh, letter. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Our Father... Uh, We are grateful for the opportunities we have this morning to worship you in song and prayer, confession, giving. We come now to listen to you as you speak to us through your word, your authoritative, infallible, sufficient, and clear word. Help us to understand it, to believe it, to obey it by grace. Transform us by the renewing of our minds that the gospel may bring about sound living. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the living word to which or to whom the written word points. Amen. We just sang a song by Martin Luther, so I thought of the Reformation there. One of the things that happened during the Reformation is that some people were a little bit exuberant. They were joyous that they had come out from the tyranny of Rome, and uh, sometimes they took it a little too far. This morning we were talking a little bit about the law of God and the first and second commandments and uh, the one about idols and graven images. And what some of these people did in their exuberance is they went to all the cathedrals because they had stained glass windows and they destroyed them, believing that that was a violation of the second commandment. They were called iconoclasts because they broke icons. That's what the word means. There's a sense in which what most gospel ministry is, is iconoclasm. We're destroying idols. Not stained glass windows, but something far more dangerous because it lies not outside of us, but it lies actually within us. And so when I was here, when was I here? January. January. Oh, wow. (laughs) So much has happened. When I was here in January, I talked uh, about ministry from uh, Colossians chapter 1, and it's about proclaiming Christ, and it is about admonishment and instruction and all of those things. And part of what takes place, and one of the, the, the battlefields in which it takes place, is this idea of uprooting and destroying idols, just as John talks about the very last thing he wants these people to know. And almost like the very last thing he wants them to remember. So, First John. The big idea this morning is that grace keeps Jesus central to our affections. It's not a very profound thing, is it? It shouldn't be. But it's not always profound. It is the simplest of things. The first part that I want us to look at this morning as we talk about grace keeping Jesus central to our affections is that idolatry poses the greatest threat to our growth in grace. We might think it is something very different than that, but when we look at it from a scriptural perspective, we begin to see that it is idolatry which is the greatest 
threat to our growth and grace. John calls them, as he has repeatedly throughout this letter, his little children. Possibly he led them to faith. We're not really sure because we're not, we're not precisely sure to whom he wrote. It's not like some of Paul's letters to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Corinth. There's no to the church in anything here. That's why it's called a general letter or Catholic letter. But what he was doing is he was writing to Christians that he loved, that were maturing in their faith, and yet they were not yet mature, if you make that distinction there. And so his command at the very end of this letter about idols seems to come sort of out of the blue because he has not said that phrase before in this letter. He sort of alluded to it in chapter 2 when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world, but he's never really kind of called it what it is, idolatry. And here, finally at the end, he calls it what it is because he is concerned for the state of their hearts as they move forward in the Christian life. Most Christians in that day and age lived in lands that were filled with false gods. This week I've talked to a number of people about my trips to Scotland and just yesterday, we stopped at one of the houses, and there was a lady from Scotland, and we, I talked about our, our trip there. While I was over there, we spent a week in England, and we went to the British Museum of History. And one of the beautiful things about the British Museum of History is that they plundered the Middle East. <laughs> and some of what you find there are things that you read about in Scripture. You, read, you find things that reference Nebuchadnezzar, which show that the scriptures are historical and accurate. Those people really lived. One of the things that I took a picture of, and you know, if I could do it, I'd stick it up somewhere here, is a statue of Artemis or Diana from Ephesus, whose followers nearly killed Paul in a riot in Ephesus. Most Christians of that day lived in that environment where they were... Uh, considered to be guilty of a false religion, indeed of apostasy in some cases. They were filled with all of these idols, and it's not like that for us today. We don't have little statues that represent the gods. That, obviously, that statue was not Diana, but it was meant to represent Diana, the god they worshipped. What we see when we look at the Old Testament is that idolatry is the root sin that sent Israel and then Judah into exile. That's what we find. Read the, read the range of prophets, and that's what you will see. Pride and idolatry were behind all of the sins they committed that led to God removing them from the land. The prophet Jonah realized the danger of idols as he sat in the belly of the great fish. Jonah says this, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And so Jonah didn't realize this until he ended up in the belly of the fish. But as there, finally, he realizes it. He realizes that idols are, he uses this, these two words, and the, the, the two words basically can be translated as empty vapors. That's, that's what idols are. They're empty. They're vapors. They have no substance. They have no, uh, no real concreteness. They don't really exist. It's like trying to cling to air. You can't do it, can you? And when you try to close your hand around an idol, you're not able to grasp and hold on to the grace that could be yours, is what Jonah learned. 
forfeited it. He abandoned it. He walked away from it until such time as God brought him into the belly of the fish. And so the issue we find here, I think, in 1 John 5 is not so much the issue of the second command, the making of a graven image, but really the first commandment. Martin Luther talks about this in his catechism. And he says essentially that anytime you break one of the ten, one of the last nine commandments, you're breaking the first as well. Because what you are saying is, is that at that moment, something else is your God, is determining what you will do in life. Sproul talks about it this way. He says that anytime that we choose sin, we are, at that moment you are loving that sin more than you are loving your God. I think he got that from Luther. He loves Luther. And so what we're doing is we're treating something as greater and more important to us at that moment than God is. That is what John is afraid of. He's not afraid that they'll have little statues in their house and worship them, although I've seen that too. He's, worship, he's worried primarily about calling Jesus our Lord and our Savior, but at the very same time pursuing something as if it is more important than Jesus. That it becomes life-defining for us. We can set our hearts on things other than God and seek our life and our happiness in them. While we were sitting in the, the, the plane waiting to pull up in Tucson, you know, at the end of a flight, I'm restless. So I pulled out the little magazine that Southwest has and I'm flipping through it and Someone put down their 11-year-old daughter's definition of an iPod. They wanted to explain an iPod to a senior citizen. And if there are senior citizens here who know what an iPod is, I'm sorry. I didn't write this article. (laughs) But I found what this 11-year-old said to be amazing. For she, she described it as a piece of technology that some people cherish with all their life. Idolatry from the mouths of babes sometimes. Cherish with all their life. That's what we do sometimes. We cherish things besides God with all of our lives. This is why John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. And what we do is that we take good things and essentially make them ultimate things. And one of the words that was found in the New Testament that conveys this is this idea of, uh, I'll, I'll translate the word because you guys... Don't know Greek, so don't worry about it. Top desires. When you see what talks about uh, evil desires or covetousness throughout the New Testament, Paul uses this, and you find this in James's letter as well. He's talking about top desires. That word epi, like epicenter, on top of the center where the earthquake starts. But uppermost desire, ultimate priorities, as we might call them. When we take a good thing but make it an ultimate desire. That's idolatry. And this is what our hearts do. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money at the same time because a man cannot serve two masters, right? What we try to do is we try to serve God and our idols at the same time, and we can't. My whole last year of life, I've had two to three bosses at any given time, and I've realized I can't keep them both happy. They both want me to work at the same time. I can't do that. And so we are caught between allegiances, unable to do it. 
And so we look to our idols for something that really only God can ultimately give us. That's the nature of idolatry. And due to indwelling sin, we continually seek things as if they were God or able to give us what God alone can give us. Let's move on to the second part of this, which is identifying your idols is essential to guarding your heart. You can't guard your heart from something unless you know kind of what it is and, and in your case, what it is. Not just generally, but specifically. Because no two of us are alike, or are alike. We struggle with different idols. The things that really you are tempted by are not necessarily going to be the same things I'm tempted by and vice versa. Okay? Amy is tempted by different things than I am. And we need to understand, be able to do sort of soul surgery, to understand what it is that plagues us. Our idols lie, lie invisible under our visible sin. When I talked about root cause. Really, think about it as plants. You see the, the flower. Maybe it's, I should say weeds because they're nasty and they're horrible, but you see the flower, the blossom of the weed, and that is the visible sin, the tangible sin that we can see, that we have experienced. But what we think is that if we just clip off the bud, then it's done. Without We forget that there is a root to that, and the root is typically an idol that bears the ugly fruit of our visible sin. Most sins service our idols. They demand obedience from us, but they offer us very little. So how do we sort this out? How do we identify these things? And I've come up with a couple of questions. That, well, actually, I didn't come up with them. Most of them came from David Paulison, uh, but I think I, I might have an original thought in here. And the first is to examine your extreme emotions. What is it that gets you really ticked off, or what gets you really sad? And despondent. I mean, I lived with a guy once who, if his sports team lost, he was a mess for a week. Okay? Idle. <laughs> you know, that's kind of really what it is. That's what's driving it. I mentioned to Presbytery on Friday that. In God's providence, my son, even though he shares absolutely no genetic connection to me, unless you go way back to the time of Noah, is like me. And it drives me insane. <laughs> it reveals, he, he reveals more than Jaden reveals the remnants of my idol of control. And when he doesn't do what I tell him to do, man, I get mad. There's an idol at work. It's not just that my son needs to learn obedience, which he does, but there's also my own sinfulness engaged in this process. Another way to look at this to try to understand what our, our particular idols might be, what are your addictions? Really, addictions are idols. That's all they are. What is the source of comfort when you are in pain? Where do you go to ease the pain? Or another way of looking at it, since you know, we don't want to consider ourselves as addicts, um, where do you seek refuge from the difficulties in life? 
If you have a bad day, what do you do? Do you go home and eat a half gallon of ice cream? Do you go home and zone out on the TV or go surfing all night? Well, they not have to be bad things that you do, but these are the things we look to. Do you go shopping? I got you a woman there, huh? Not many guys go shopping when they're having a rough day. Equal, equal opportunity here. Where do you go? Another thing. What keeps you up at night? Thinking. Worrying. I'm about to serve on jury duty again. Before I leave Florida, they got me one last time. <laughs> I hate jury duty. It's a monumental waste of my time, I think, because I never actually serve on the jury because everyone finds out I'm a pastor and they don't want me on the jury, and, but I have to show up anyway, you know? And I never served on jury duty until Amy was pregnant, and I haven't stopped serving since. Every year, boom, boom. This is, this, this is statistically impossible. But anyway, it reminded me of the last time I served jury duty. And it was during the transition, and I wasn't working my three jobs yet. And I remember driving to jury duty, fighting with God. It was about my house. I was afraid that we would lose the house. I was afraid that we'd end up living in our cars or something crazy like that. Or worse, we'd have to go back to New York and live with Amy's parents. I love them. But that's not where I want to live. My house was an idol. And I had been losing sleep thinking about it. So what keeps you up at night is, is often an indication that there's an idol at work within your heart. Another clue to this is basically what they do with the mob. Follow the money. Look at your checkbook. Where are you spending it? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart has been. That's what you're setting your heart upon. What must you have? Kind of like that iPod. You think your life is not complete without. That's why Colossians 3 verse 5 says that greed is idolatry. Last one. Probably the most pertinent one. What creates relational conflict in your life? James 4 starts off with that very question. What are all the fights and quarrels of, about that are among you, James asks. And he says that it's their ultimate desires. And the reason why they are destroying one another in the church was because of their idolatry. Basically, somebody was messing with their idol was trying to take it away from them. And they fought. They couldn't have control. They couldn't get the right color carpet. It's all about idolatry. It's about control and wanting to get your own way. Fights within the church. Yeah, I'm, I'm, start, I'm starting to meddle now. I think in our search committee meeting, they, you're going to meddle? Yeah. I think some of them wanted me to meddle, okay? Not... No. Too late now. 
Not all, but most church fights end up being about idols, about control, about getting your own way, instead of Jesus' way, which is why James says to them, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Submit yourselves. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, anyway, how does that look? It doesn't have to be a church. I think of this, I'm not watching as much ESPN. But when I was watching too much ESPN, I'd come home tired, worn out. Wives, you probably identify with it. You know, your, your husband's in this state. They come home. They don't want to deal with kids. They don't want to have a conversation because they've been having conversations all day long. They probably want to sit in front of the TV. Any guys like this? Am I the only one? Come on. All right. Wives, now you know. Okay? And inevitably, what happens is the guy on ESPN says the word Boston. And in the providence of God, is it at that precise moment that something pops into my wife's head that she must tell me then and there, and I have not yet learned to hit the pause button on the DVR, and instead I try to hit the pause button on my wife. There is no pause button on my wife. There is none. That's why God put pause buttons on the DVR. And maybe within five years, I will learn to hit the pause button on the DVR. My idol is is not so much Boston sports, but my idol at that moment is, I want peace. And she's disturbing it. Or the kids are disturbing it. Which creates unsettling feelings in the home. It's an idol that's behind all of it. My idol, not hers. Okay. Not picking on you, baby. So these signs are, are leading us to our own idols. For, uh, they're, they're there to find, and we must find them. So let's move to the last part of this. Is that vital, satisfying fellowship with the true God destroys idols. And right now I'm looking at my notes, and you don't have the Greek font on your computer that I have on mine, so it has some gibberish there. But basically the, the, the Greek word in that, that John uses means to watch, to defend, to guard. It's warfare kind of stuff. It's, it's recognizing there's an enemy who seeks to overcome you, and you must guard your heart against them at all costs. It is a kill-or-be-killed kind of situation. And so we must be alert to the reality of the idols in our lives. We must identify them so that we can then destroy them lest they destroy us. As the great Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We are, they just, and we too are to be vigilant over our hearts. But here's the good news. You're not in that alone. Jesus fights with you and for you. Hosea 14, verse 4. God says, I will heal their waywardness or their apostasy. 
And apostasy had to do with idolatry. Basically, I will heal them of their idolatry and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And so if you are someone who trusts in Christ to deliver you from your sins, uh, Christ is now, the anger of God is gone, and now He is here to heal you of your own personal waywardness. Though we are prone to wander, He is there to bring us back. And so we do this not alone, but we do this in the reality of who Jesus is, that He is for us, and that He is at work in us. How does this take place? What does this look like? Three things, the first two... well, let's see here. I got three three ideas of this, and the first is frustration. God frustrates us. He brings circumstances into our lives that will reveal our idols. He will put you in places where you will get mad, so that you might see what's really behind the anger. He will put you in circumstances where you will become sad that you might see what is behind the sadness. He frustrates you. He frustrates me. We encounter times in which the secrets of our hearts are laid bare. I mean, that's what happened to Jonah. He didn't know where his idols were until God said, Arise and go to Nineveh. And he said, Nope. Until then, he did not know about his idol of nationalism. God providentially works to reveal these things in us. The second is similar to it, and that is the wilderness, which I guess is the way I look at it because this is what happens in the wilderness, is that God doesn't frustrate you so much as he deprives you of your idol. Just as he brought the Israelites alone into the wilderness after the Exodus, away from all of the false gods, away from all of them. We see that as well in Hosea when God was going to bring uh, Judah or Israel out into the wilderness that he might speak tenderly to her and return and bring his love back. And so sometimes God brings us into this idea of a wilderness to deprive us of our idols that we might see that they really are empty vapors. And what we need really is him. Music has been an immensely important part of my life. Probably too important. It was one of the places I would go because, you know, friends would let me down. But music was always there. I could always go into my room and I'll date myself, put on my LP and listen to music and sort of sort through my feelings. And sometimes it was a lot of anger. In 1995, I moved into a house with two other guys. One of the things I was doing was an informal internship at a local church. And one day I'd spent a couple hours uh, with the associate pastor and I'd Stopped it for groceries on the way home. I wasn't gone for more than a couple of hours. And I walked into the house to discover that we had been robbed. And about the only thing that was taken was my CD collection. I was left with the four CDs that were in the CD changer. 
two U2 CDs, a Steve Taylor CD, and I don't know what the other one was. I went from I don't know how many CDs down to four. It's gone. The wilderness. Think of the last year and a half of our lives. You know, we get to put the house on, on the market for a while there, and the, what did the realtor say? You've got to clean up the clutter. Well, what do you think the clutter turned into? My CD collection. <laughs> Most of my CDs are currently in a box at my friend's house. I've had basically a handful of CDs that I had at my office, and, you know, that I could listen to, to remind me of the goodness of God. And I was so grateful when finally someone gave me a Barnes & Noble gift certificate for my birthday so I could buy the new U2 and Switchfoot CDs. Um, <laughs> but see, God deprives us of our idols that we might see how much we love them and therefore repent of how much we love them because it's, we love them too much at times. It's a good thing that we love too much. And so he pulls it away that we might grasp this. Regardless of which of those two God does, we must come to the third, which is really the important point. What I guess I have called abiding wonder. When we confront the empty vapor of our idols with the knowledge of God's greatness and goodness. We call it like it is. We see that our idols only demand obedience, but they cannot satisfy our hearts. We see that our idols make no sacrifices for us, but they demand sacrifices from us, and they do not help us to love anybody else. In fact, they usually tend to withdraw us from other people and prevent us from loving other people. And then we see God and His Son Jesus as this whole letter talks about from beginning to end, that Jesus died the death that our idolatry deserved that he who knew no idolatry became idolatry, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's essentially what happens, as Paul would say it from 2 Corinthians 5. He died to free us from their grasp. He died to free us from our inordinate love of the world and everything in it. He loved us to free us to love him. For this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice. So really, it is only as we abide in wonder at what God has done for us on the cross in His Son, Jesus, that we are set free from the power of the idols in our hearts. That's it. I remember the turning point in one of my battles. I was sitting there, and I, and I actually did what Martin Lloyd-Jones often tells us to do. I talked to myself, and I talked to my idol. And I said, you cannot satisfy me like Jesus can. Sometimes we have to verbalize it. We can't just think it. I don't know why that is, but I know that it is. We have to declare it for what it is. Say, 
you know, you make these empty promises and there may be pleasure, but it will be fleeting. But with Jesus, there are joys at his hand forever. Tim Keller talks about it in his book on counterfeit gods, and he basically acknowledges that he steals it from Thomas Chalmers and his sermon, The um, Expulsive Power of a Greater Love. We cannot get rid of our idols unless we replace them with a greater love for a greater object, the Lord our God. That's it. Unless you do that, all you will do is replace it with something else. I've already preached longer than I planned on preaching on one tiny little thing. For my counseling program, I had to go to an AA meeting. Talk about people who've replaced one idol with another. They're all sitting there talking about how they're not drinking anymore while they smoke up a storm and drink coffee like there's no tomorrow. They just substituted one addiction for another or two or three. And apart from the abiding love of Jesus Christ, that is what we do. We will just switch one idol for another unless we reset our hearts back on Him and Him alone. So, John has declared the nature of true Christianity to them before he warns them about idols. And so you who know Christ, who trust Christ, don't settle for a cheap substitute. You who do not yet trust Him, who do not yet know Him, freedom from your guilt, your shame, your powerlessness is available in Christ. And only He can set all of us free from our twisted affections because sanctification is not just about the renewal of the mind and the renewal of the will. It is also about the renewal of our affections. That's what Jesus is out to do. Let's pray. Father, our older brother John wrote this so that we would not sin. But that when we do, and we do, he reminds us of Jesus, the righteous one, who can not only remove our guilt, but renew our hearts. And so we ask that through your son, the atoning sacrifice, that you would turn our hearts toward you, the living God, the one that created all things, that they would find their proper place in our lives. So help us to love one another well, being humble and patient as we guard our hearts from idols. And in the name, we ask this in the name of our Savior and Sanctifier, Jesus. Amen.